Welcome back, everyone, to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for all things careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. We're continuing on with our goal of showcasing all the variety of talents that go into building a tech company, as well as the different paths people take to get to where they are. Today's guest is a biochemist, churned educator, churned technologist, with an extensive track record of contributions to open source projects, as well as one of the most prolific tech writers I know, having authored numerous technical books and articles on a range of hot topics, including artificial intelligence, machine learning, and streaming analytics. She also is an in-demand speaker, having just delivered the keynote at a 2,000-person-plus tech conference. And I'm pretty sure, as far as I can tell, she lives out of a suitcase even more than (laughs) I do. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Ellen Friedman. Ellen, great to have you. Uh, Grant, uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, into this conversation. Great, great to have you. And why don't we just jump in, Ellen, and have you start off by introducing yourself and, and your career and kind of the path you've taken to, to get to where you are now? Um, okay, well, I'm going to start with where I am at the moment. We'll jump back to the beginning and, and then fill in the middle in between, if that sounds good. Perfect. Um, uh, currently, I work uh, with a company in the uh, California, uh, Silicon Valley area. Uh, the company is headquartered there, and it's called MapR Technologies. And my uh, role, my title with the company is Principal Technologist. Uh, as Grant mentioned, I started off in a very different area in, in the natural sciences. Um, I have a doctorate in biochemistry and started doing uh, research in biochemistry and molecular biology uh, in academic settings. Uh, mainly. And so that's what the formal training was. And that's a very unusual start for the place that I find myself now. Um, uh, But there certainly have been some key skills, some, uh, I think, some key uh, decisions that were made that kind of follow through the path and connect the two in in a way that's probably not just obvious from the the outside uh, job description. And a lot of that has to do with this idea of how you identify the the key ideas in any topic, the key ideas, the key concepts, the key things that really make a difference. And a person, whether they're new to that topic or an expert in it, I think that's good knowledge to have. And if you're able to identify that and communicate it to others, that can be a really useful skill. And I found that that has been a, an element in all the different things that I've done. Yeah, I was going to say, as I, I did my homework on, on you, Alan, and obviously we've known each other for some time, is one of the consistent themes I see throughout your career is this kind of, obviously you did the, the formal education, if you will, but then there's just this just consistent theme of, of education throughout, you know, having from, from the looks of it, having done some early work around actually creating coursework and things like that uh, and, and, and helping out and, and teaching. And so perhaps elaborate a little bit more on some of those inflection points, if you will, where, you know, as you, as you pivoted through those early stages of coming out of the natural sciences and, and leading up to now in terms of, you know, key decision points that said, you know what, I'm going to get into software or I'm going to, I'm going to get into education a bit more. Yeah. Um, absolutely true that there's been this uh, kind of underlying theme that has to do with education, but not always education in the traditional sense of what education is. Um, I come from a family uh, 
both of my parents had just the highest respect for uh, for education, for learning, for uh, information, for you know having a good mind and putting it to good use and and working really hard at that. But uh, both of my parents uh, were involved in that, but in some ways, and again, a non-traditional path, and there's more than one way to learn a thing. My mother uh, uh, ended up as a planetarium director, which was particularly unusual for women uh, back in in that day, and she was the first uh, female uh, president of an organization of planetarium directors. And my father uh, was uh, first a teacher and then ended up as a... uh, uh, administrator, vice president for a, a very large two-year college. Uh, he was by nature and by uh, training actually an engineer, but had gotten into education just for, for practical reasons. And then uh, he went on and, and opened whole areas, whole schools of uh, technical training so that people could basically go back to school at any point in their career and, and get practical training, not just you know traditional education, but training that led them directly into a job. And I think coming out of that background always, and so, so I have no formal education in, in education. I'm, I'm trained as a research scientist. I have not really any formal training in writing, and I've been writing all my life. So some of these things are skills that you pick up uh, because they're things that you think are important. Uh, you may have some natural talent for it. You make use of it within the context of what you're doing. And then you find opportunities to uh, apply those skills uh, to another situation. So putting that in short, say there's two different paths to get to a spot to say, I'm capable of doing this. And maybe one of those is you've gone through, you know, kind of traditional classes and training and you have a, a little piece of paper that says you have a degree or certification that you've been taught certain things. The other path is the path of, of kind of self-education, educating yourself within experience and opportunity. And I think they both are very useful. Yeah, no, that's, that's so well said. And, you know, and I think one of the things our guests would, our, our listeners would be particularly interested in, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of us, at least when we're younger, we have this notion that, oh, I must go work in the field I got my degree in. Yeah. Right. And, you know, okay, so you, you did your PhD in, in biochemistry, and then these days you're a principal technologist. Like, can you share a little bit more about, like, what was that, to, to that change like in terms of making the decision that you said, hey, you know, I, I did this degree and that was great. I learned to be a research scientist, but, but I want to do something else now. Yeah, um, absolutely. And some of these things were uh, I'll say directed decisions. I was looking for a change or looking for a particular thing. In other cases, they were a moment of expediency or an yeah. opportunity. You start doing something uh, on the side or something you think you're going to do temporarily, and suddenly it opens, you know, enormous opportunity, and and you go in that direction. So, you know, I'd like to say it was all carefully planned out, and <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, but I, you, I, you've hit on a really important point, and that is this formal training. I have a, a lot of formal uh, training in a, in a, a very specialized area. Uh, my doctorate was in biochemistry from an extremely good department, and I was trained to do research uh, and, and did do research. And, but I, 
began just through the interest, uh, I've always been interested in information. Um, I went into molecular biology, which was quite a new field at that time. Those are such highly specialized areas that when I came from Rice University in Houston, where I got the PhD in biochemistry, went to the University of California in San Diego and was working in molecular biology, I felt like I had changed fields. Hmm. And to the outside world, you know, it takes fine instruments to tell those aren't the same thing. <laughs> They're so closely related. Uh, but within those worlds, you can get blinders so big, you know, you're so yeah. focused on the thing that you do. And uh, even at that time, uh, uh, a, a coworker of mine, a person who was doing postdoctoral research in the lab where I was working, uh, made the observation that one of the things that that PhD uh, does teaches you or shows that you've learned is the ability to to think to work from evidence to work within a a discipline and of course it means you have very specialized knowledge in that discipline but when you are aimed at and involved in doing research cutting edge research working with an innovative technology or an innovative business really by definition whatever you already know you know, a year and two years and five years later is not going to be exactly what you're doing because you're cutting new ground. I mean, just by definition. And I found that comment from him really helpful because he said, you know, you haven't so much changed what you're doing. You're just applying it to a different new ground than the new ground you thought you were going to be applying it to. And I think, you know, as I, as I left, research science many, many years later. But even, even as a researcher, I worked within medical fields. I worked within uh, uh, plant uh, genetic engineering fields, you know, very, very different fields. Um, and as I moved on to, to do other kinds of work, which was initially doing uh, uh, technical writing, some of it for, for NASA and for a National Ocean Service, um, it's that sense of taking those same basic principles into a new area. Yes, doing that writing is very different than doing research, but I think a lot of the same, the same principles uh, do apply. And so it's that sense of, of flexibility, of being able to be really interested in the topic and to get down again to those key ideas that are what really matter. The ability to do that it can be very, very helpful, and you can apply that in a, in a variety of different ways. Yeah. So, no, that's great. And, and in fact, I think that that's a good segue into one of my questions, which is, you know, you you write on a lot of really complex topics, right? You know, I mean, yes. I know you and I live in this field of AI <laughs> and all that, and so sometimes it it, it feels like the norm, but it, it's actually a really hard field. There's a lot of math. There's a lot of complexity. We're talking often scaling to really large problems, large amounts of data. And, you know, one of the things I've always admired about your writing is you, is you take in, and you make it available to everybody, even though they don't necessarily have a PhD. And I, from what I'm gathering, it sounds like a lot of your, you know, what makes you successful as a writer is this ability then to, to pick up a new area, unpack it, understand it, right? Is, you know, can you re- reflect a little bit more on that perhaps? Um, y- yes. Uh, I'm, I'm flattered that you, <laughs> I'm very flattered by what you just said. <laughs> and we do work in an area, I have to say, I, I, I find it surprising that, that these areas, especially uh, 
artificial intelligence, machine learning. That was kind of my intro into the areas uh, that I work in now and that I write about uh, or communicate about. Um, and so that was a surprise because that is not, you know, certainly not my formal training. I want to just uh, go on record and say there is a big distinction. Uh, I did a lot of um, writing, public speaking, and so forth about the areas that I was trained in where I was still doing research. So I really was an expert down to, you know, the fine grained level of executing this. Yeah. In this world, I'm an observer and a, and a communicator. I don't actually build these systems myself with my own hands. And so I don't have your level of expertise in this. Uh, but I'm bringing something different in, and it is just what you said, is I'm trying to make these areas accessible to different people. And, and even to the people who are already experts in the field, sometimes they literally don't have the time to step back and, and, and look at the thing in a way to understand, again, these key ideas, it helps them think about it differently because these, these, these fields are rapidly, rapidly changing. So it helps them, you know, think about the pieces that most matter, but it also helps them communicate that um, to other people. So just yeah. the example of somebody working in machine learning, you may be the person with the math, actually building the algorithm, you know, building the model or using somebody else's pre-trained model. But you need to be able to work with other people, including people with domain knowledge in the field that you're writing about. Maybe you're brought in as an expert to build, you know, a machine learning system for somebody in medical field. Doesn't mean you have the medical knowledge. Doesn't mean they have the knowledge of how to build that algorithm, but the two of you need to be able to communicate with each other in a very serious way. And yeah. I think being that translator between these these key ideas, um, somebody asked me if that meant what I'm doing is dumbing the stuff down. And I said, I detest that phrase and would yeah. never either use it or do it. And I said, what I'm trying to do is take these fields and smarten them down. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. The absolute key ideas that matter because those can then be, you know, communicated across to other people they don't have to know all the details of how to do it, but they do need to understand what it is and they do need to understand, you know, what are the elements in it that matter. And so I, I spend my time talking to people like yourself. I've written a lot of these books with uh, Ted Dunning. I wrote one on a uh, open source project, Apache Flink with Kostas Tumis, uh, who's the CEO of data artisans in, in Berlin. Uh, I go to the people who know this, the work that I did for NASA, I interviewed 12 of the research scientists in oceanography. So I go to the people who know the topic and talk to them long enough that I begin to understand the, the pieces in there that most matter. If I can explain it to myself, I can explain it to somebody else. And I yeah. think that's been that common thread. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I mean, I think, the, I, I think you hit on so many key things there. And actually, one of the themes that's been emerging in this podcast already with the people I've interviewed is this, you know, like, I don't care how technical you are or non-technical you are, right? Like the world we live in, you have to be able to bridge that gap. And the only way you're going to bridge that gap is through communication. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit like, you know, what is, what is your day to day look like? You know, I mentioned you travel a lot, you give a lot of talks and, and, you know, and of course that puts pressure on 
you know, you also, I'm sure, need a lot of quiet time to be able to effectively ingest these new ideas. You know, what's what's a day in the life of Ellen Friedman look like? Well, you've absolutely uh, hit struck the most important issue is finding that quiet time to actually, you know, process this. And I was just thinking, it's funny that you said that. I literally made a note to myself, <laughs> a sticky note on the corner of my desk this morning and said, you have to start actually scheduling that in because it's not happening. <laughs> so, so thank you for reinforcing that. That's absolutely true. Uh, that's a lesson. I'm just going to hit on that for a moment. If this is going yeah. on too long, I apologize. But, no, that's great. Uh, uh, Camille Fourier, uh, an amazing lady. I know of her through the, the zookeeper, uh, Patchy Ooh. Zookeeper project. Camille Fourier. Yep, but just let me pause you right there because she's one of our guests already. Uh, uh, so oh, we'll no kidding. Sure to link that up in the show notes. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Camille just uh, about two weeks ago. So, well, yeah, sorry, keep going. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm, I'm very impressed by her on so many different levels. Um, but uh, several years ago, I was about to do a, a talk at a Strata Data conference, and the talk was called something like, uh, decisions and, and society, or what, how to make decisions about using data. I don't remember exactly what the title of the talk was. And I was reading different things to make sure I wasn't just, you know, giving my own opinion. And I came across something in her blog, and back then I believe she was CTO of a company called Rent the Runway. I hope I'm not misrepresenting that. But she had, it was kind of an end of the year blog, and she had said, that she was looking back over the year to say what was the most valuable decision she had made. And she felt that the most valuable decision is they moved to uh, a pattern of greater agility. I think that they had, I don't remember the frequency, but much more frequent uh, uh, releases and so forth. And she had, you know, worked with her team and they had really embraced that and that had worked very well for them. And she was about to say, that was my best decision of that year or whatever that was, 2015, 2016. But uh, then she thought about it and she said, no, that was my second best decision. She said, my best decision is I gave myself, I'll make up the numbers, I don't remember, two hours on a Wednesday afternoon, whatever it was. But she actually built into her schedule an hour or two of quiet time where she just closed the door and allowed herself to think, not just to work on whatever the current deadline is, but literally just to think yeah. and to see you know, if new ideas would come or whatever. And it's because she did that, that she came up with this other, this other decision about changing their, their pattern of releases. And I just thought that was so smart because it's not just that observation that you need that time, but it's the importance of actually building then. I mean, now this is my words and not her, but if you have a dental appointment, you, you, you make the time and you get to the dentist. Right. But we don't make those appointments with ourselves very well. Yeah. And uh, I just, that was my reminder today. I need to, to follow some pattern, whatever the timing is, it, it'll, you'll fit to your yeah. own needs, but uh, set aside some time for, for uh, really digesting all this. Um, but so hopefully if you talk to me later, I'll say that's part of my typical day. <laughs> well, that's like great. That. It's great advice. Uh, in fact, I know one of the things I've always told my direct reports is like, look, if you don't respect your time, nobody else is going to either. That's a great. <laughs> that's right. a great and so you have to schedule your own time. Yeah. 
you know you need a block then you know and then of course you can always back off from it but at least you've you've laid that down so so okay so you've got this quiet time and and you're traveling a lot you know so what else kind of go you mentioned you're interviewing a, a, a you're often interviewing a lot of people um, how do you approach how do you approach that so for me i really feel like there's two, well, I mean, there's many elements to what I'm doing, but there are kind of uh, two flavors to it. And one flavor is I'm, I am literally trying to get down to, to the information, to the content. I want to know what matters in a situation. I want to learn that content myself, or I don't have to know it myself down to that degree, but I want to know what somebody else needs to know. So yeah. I am like a sponge. I'm there just looking to understand and that might be literally the technical content so i you know learn a little bit about how ai is done what deep learning is what a neural net is uh it might be the, the well i do this uh, uh this work now with map our technologies and we're a, a large-scale distributed uh, data platform what you might call data where so we do data management and so forth and a lot many so it takes us into many different sectors so I look at those different sectors for our customers and try to understand how they're working with data, how are they moving into data science and machine learning, uh, you know, what, what are their needs, what are the problems they're trying to tackle. And so I'm, I may be in any given moment doing that because I'm trying to get information for a particular talk or a particular book, but really... I'm just trying to learn what's out there. I have certain things I know I want to find out, but in but I'm open to, you know, maybe the thing I'm finding out isn't the only thing that's worth knowing. And so I really value these opportunities to get to interact with people. And that might be directly, you know, when I'm taken into a, a customer or a prospect site. Uh, it, it might be at a, at a conference where, you know, I value not just the presentations but it's the the hallway conversations in many ways yeah. are the, the yeah. most valuable part but it's it, it it's online it's reading articles it's you know talking to people like yourself grant so it's just taking in information and i actually keep i'm old-fashioned so i actually keep notes i write notes by hand and i actually keep a notebook that is not connected to any specific project. Hmm. I learned something and I go, that's going to be interesting. I'm going to want to know that at some point. I'm going to want to know where I learned it so I know who to go back to to find out more about mm. it. And I just, you know, put it in the notebook and, it's, and it sits there. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I go back to it as needed. That's different from, right now I have a large writing project I need to really get into, and, and then there's actually kind of, you know, formal and disciplined steps about how I approach writing, how I approach building that, that project. So part of it is collecting the specific information for that. The other is thinking about how do I actually form it into whatever it's going to be, in this case, a, a short book. And uh, that's a very specific project. So in that case, I'm, you know, sitting at my desk or working at the whiteboard, actually building you know, some product, if you will think of it that way, yeah. a communication product based on that content. But that same content I might go back to later 
for a talk, I might go back to to help somebody else who's submitting a, an abstract for a conference. And, you know, nice. I can go back to the same. So I think it's those two modes of just sucking in that content for whatever I need it for. And then the actual act of, of building these communication pieces. Yeah. I like how you, you, you call it a communication product too. That's a great way of framing that. And, and so, you know, just kind of summarizes is, you know, what I'm hearing is there's this really interesting mix of you've got kind of this deep thought alone time and, and kind of piecing together all the puzzles you have this, you know, human in the loop uh, yes. <laughs> you will, like of, of interviewing and getting out there and kind of being this sponge that's just trying to absorb as much as you can. And then, and then you have this action part, which is like, okay, I need to now go put this on, you know, proper real paper, as it were, or right. digital paper. Uh, and and is, that a, is that a fair summary? I think that's a very good summary. I think you've helped me understand what I'm doing better than I understood it before I talked to you. So thank you. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I just want to spend one last question on kind of your, your background. And, and I know yeah. you've, you've done a lot of work on open source. And, and so talk a little bit about how like this, this third part of your life, if you will, right? Because, you know, I mean, we, we often all go to work. And of course, we have our home life. And then there's this, often for many of us who do open source, there's this it's this kind of part volunteer, part work factor. And these days there's a lot of blurred lines there, but, you know, talk yeah. about what that's meant for, for you and your career. Uh, the, the open source in, in this sector of my life has been a, a very, very big thing. Um, my, my exposure to open source is almost entirely through projects that are part are done under the, the umbrella of the Apache uh, software foundation. And, uh, I'm actually a committer on two projects, um, the Apache Drill and the Apache Mahout projects. Of course, Mahout is, is part of how I met you, Grant. Yep. But I'm unusual in that I'm not a developer. I don't actually write code and commit code to those projects. And the fact that I'm involved in them at the level that I am, I think goes to the heart of what you were alluding to earlier. It, it, the, it's not just building code in those projects. There's different ways to write code. There's different ways to have an open source. I'm talking about yeah. what happens within Apache Foundation, which is a particular style. But the community matters. It's not just a buzzword. It's a real thing. And a community of people working together on something, it's very important that those people be from multiple sources, I think at least three different you know, sources yeah. or background. You don't want a whole project to depend on one person or one small group because the, these, this, the, the software that they produce has to be reliable by outside companies, outside groups. And that means there needs to be a, a body of effort behind it, a reliable body of effort that doesn't just depend on one person or one small group or one company. If they were to go away or lose interest, the project shouldn't stop. And it's yeah. that viability of community of people who are, as you said, in, in many cases doing this on their own time and volunteer time. That certainly has been true for me. But they may be, you know, many of them in one area. They may be people spread around the world who've almost never met each other in person. It's, it's an impressive thing to think that people can work together on something that has to be done so well. I mean, it's such a huge amount of work uh, to produce this software. So 
I'm fascinated by community. I'm fascinated by the importance of communication, both in terms of connecting the community, but the other piece of it is if you've put all this effort, I mean, whether it's open source or it's, you know, private enterprise, uh, such as what we do at MAPR, if you put all this effort into building a really innovative technology, but it only really works. It isn't just you run it and the program runs. It only really works if users have vision, if they have the, the, the vision and the insight to be able to use that innovative technology to its full, you know, to its full potential. And that requires a lot of communication. So the people who build it need to understand what the needs of users are. Users need to understand, you know, the nature of the, of the beast and what they can do with it and, and provide feedback. And so I see those communities like for the Apache projects of going beyond the people who are actually building the software to even include uh, the users as well. I think they're a very, key part of the community yeah uh, i've learned just a ton from watching you know how that's done how it's being done with so many different people so that's I, i've been very very impressed by those communities yeah and, and you just never know where in open source that might even just lead to your next career or your next opportunity you just you just never know um, oh absolutely and you yeah. can see that over and over in the way you know that that it's affected different uh, that it's affected different people yeah. or companies that are built around the experience that people came, you know, got out of working on these, these open source projects. Yeah. No, so well said, Ellen. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about opportunities and challenges, you know, in, in, in your role. And, you know, obviously, you know, at the end of the day, a job's a job and, and always has its ups and downs. And, you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, some of the things you work on and, and tech, you know, or around technical writing, you know, there's obviously a lot of downward pressure in terms of outsourcing content production and, uh-huh. and, and geez, even with AI, you know, some of this stuff is starting to write itself, you know, so how do you think about the future of this role and, and how do you kind of stay ahead of the curve? Uh, I think that's a very astute question. Um, I'm, I'm going to take it in, in slightly two different directions. If, if you are doing something which is just, I don't even know the right word for it, you're, you're, you're just kind of reporting, you're just going through the motions, yeah. which needs to be done. But let's face it, I think you are more vulnerable to that being outsourced or indeed in today's world that it becomes automated. If you are adding value to the thing, you're not just kind of, you know, I wrote a certain number of words, yeah. <laughs> sent this out the door. I, I'm sorry I said it that way, but if you're really looking at it and digesting it and giving it the room to have, you know, you always go back to, oh, I guess it's what I would call kind of data sympathy. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Data can be at all different sorts of levels and and in very surprising situations, not just the kind of what you think of the formality of data that's, you know, used by a software program. So if you, if you look at information and you process that and you're, you're really thinking about what you're doing, you're trying to, to, communicate something well, but bring something fresh to it. Uh, I think you're doing something that isn't uh, easily automated and it 
And, and part of it is that you don't know exactly what the next step will be because you're, you're discovering that. I mean, you're helping the world discover it as well. And so uh, it certainly makes the work more interesting, and I think you're building a freshness. So you're not just writing, you're thinking, you're yeah. strategizing, you're discovering, you know, in the world out there what's happening, and you're helping people, you know, recognize the patterns and what they're doing. And so I think those things, uh, those are skills that can take you in a lot of interesting directions. And I think that they, uh, they also have a fair amount of job security. Having said that, I just want to touch on something I said at the very beginning, because I think your overall purpose here is to look at different careers. Yeah. And some of the most interesting careers that people have had, I'm not just talking about myself, but other people that I've seen where they finally ended up with a really good match for you know, what they wanted to do and it was practical and brought them a good living or maybe it let them travel a lot if they wanted that or, you know, let them do new things, whatever it was that made that work fulfilling and a good fit for them. In many cases, they're actually working at a career that they didn't even know existed. They didn't even know that slot. I'm thinking of a woman who was a, a graduate student where I used to be a professor. She got a degree in molecular biology uh, I'll anonymize this because I didn't check ahead that I can use her as an example, but she was basically trained to do academic research in molecular biology, but by the time she finished the degree, she had changed her feeling about it. She didn't want to work in that field anymore. Yeah. And uh, she did some volunteering that made use of her tremendous organizational skills and her ability to uh, to understand information. And she literally was kind of taken under the wing of, of somebody else who saw potential in her and kind of coached into a career. And she works, she has a, a very high position at an international, huge international corporation. And her role there has to do with international food regulation. Oh, interesting. But it was a perfect match. She is using a lot of the knowledge that she got through her formal academic training, but it's so not the typical thing that you say, I got this degree in, in molecular biology, and now I'm going to go in an academic lab and be a professor and do these things. It's such a, such a different career. It has been a fantastic career for her, yeah. and she didn't even know it existed until someone basically pointed her toward it and would like for you to do this and Here, try this <laughs> but but i so i'll use yeah. her as an example because i think a lot of this has happened in my life as well but i think she she did this brilliantly a big piece of that was luck it was other people who happened to open a door for her yeah my friend was astute enough brave enough <laughs> and hard enough working that she took advantage of the luck when it showed up. Yeah. And not all of us do that. <laughs> so yeah. it may have been luck that happened to open that door for her, but she jumped in and, you know, really, really took advantage of it. And she could see that those, that was a, a very good match for, for her uh, skills and her interests. I think that part of the challenge, and I said at the beginning, you know, maybe you get to a thing through a traditional path or you have, my degree matches up with the job description. I think a big part of the challenge is that we don't all control who, do, who does, who makes the hiring decisions. And, and I worry a little as these things start to be automated, that people 
who are making hiring decisions rely too much on checking off all the boxes to make it look like somebody yeah. fits. And yeah. they may be missing some of the best opportunities to you know, really bring in fresh thinking and fresh backgrounds, such as what happened with my friend. And you know, that has happened in my life as well. So yeah. when you move into, and that's frankly one way that these open source projects can help because you jump in and get experience in something that you can then show somebody, look, I really you know, can do this thing. But it is a little easier if you're in really innovative fields where there's a lot of change. You know, suddenly it matters more what you're actually able to do than officially what the piece of paper that came out of college claims you're trained to do. But as you get into much more structured situations, I'm not, not going to kid you that that is a challenge. And I think, you know, I'd love to see people hiring, keep a little more open mind that there are going to be a few outliers there that may well be, well be worth looking at. But, you know, as people going into kind of, Non, non-straight line career paths, it is something that they have to uh, look for ways to make that opportunity open for them. And then they have to do a little out of the box thinking just to get the opportunity. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I think to me, and I, in fact, I just gave a talk on this, uh, uh, the single most important hiring trait one can make uh, decision based off is, is what is this person's willingness to figure things out? And I oh, beautifully that's, said, yes. That's what your... Uh, effectively getting you know sure you can check all the other boxes and you know obviously you got to make sure budgets align and things like that but at the end of the day does this person want to figure it out that's a great way to put you it know? Uh, and, and so perhaps then as as a segue into the final question i ask all my guests and i think you, you even kind of touched on it here and so maybe it's summarizing in your own words is is you know Ellen, as you, as you kind of look back and reflect on all of this and, and you think about somebody who's following a similar path to you, uh, you know, what advice would you give them? Um, <laughs> the, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to laugh, you know, a similar path to me would be a pretty unusual path. <laughs> you know, but there's at least one data point that says it's happened, right? <laughs> well, but I guess, yes. So a similar path to me in that, you're out there working in a technical field. You are doing it maybe in a slightly non-traditional way, which can be super exciting and a really great, uh, really great fit. And so in that sense, you know, other people are following that same path. Yeah. So here, here's, here's the advice that I give. Uh, if we're talking about technology and especially the sorts of technology and the kinds of things that, that, that you work with, for example, Grant, I think, the sense of becoming data aware, just be, understand data. I don't know yeah. specific data set, but begin to understand the importance of data in our lives and so many different fields, it, even if you're not the person who's you know, right down there writing the code and so forth. I think that's a very valuable thing to know. Communication you touched on, and it really does matter. Uh, and it may be what you're being paid to do is again to produce these what I called communication products, but maybe not, maybe that's not what you're paid to do, but communication within teams, but between departments, you know, between people doing machine learning and people who have domain knowledge that they need to work with that communication 
needs to work much better than it often does. Yeah. And so the better your skills are to communicate or to help other teams communicate with each other, uh, I think that can make a huge difference. The next thing I would say is, is, you know, be like my friend. Make a plan. Plan the future. Don't just, you know, dive into it. But keep your eyes open for opportunity. Recognize a great opportunity when it shows up, even if it wasn't exactly aligned with what you're originally doing. And, and be brave enough to take advantage of, you know, that kind of luck when it shows up. Talk to people you know, don't, don't just look at the traditional definition of, of where uh, a particular degree or a particular career is supposed to take you. It's just keep your eyes open for yeah. other things. And you may find something, you know, that's a really, uh, a really exciting fit. Uh, and I guess the last thing is keep, 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 keep pushing for something that's, that's good for you, that's a good fit, that's a good living, that's an interesting thing to do. Uh, it doesn't mean that you won't do a lot of things in your day-to-day life that are the kind of mundane grind that you'd rather not have to do. <laughs> sure. You know, you recognize that the most exciting jobs in the world have a lot of that in it. But yeah. that's just like uh, if you're going to go out and do some amazing sport, you're going to spend a lot of time training. It's yeah. that moment of doing the amazing race or whatever that you're that you're training for and, and just see that other stuff as part of the training. But uh, you know, keep your eyes open for, for opportunities that may feel that fulfilling. And in some cases, those may be volunteer opportunities or things like working on these open source projects and you find, you know, some fulfillment of maybe a piece that's not in your, your, your practical uh, uh, day job, as they say that way. And in some cases, those things open, you know, great, great other careers as well. Yeah. Uh, that's that's so well said and so much rich and, and useful advice in there, Ellen. Ellen, as, as always, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you. I want to thank you for coming on the Developmentor podcast. Uh, Grant, thank you for having me. And I love the fact that you are helping people just look at the huge range of, of what careers actually can be. I think that's a really useful thing. Thank you very much. 